song says, Who is like the Lord our God, mighty to save? A wonderful truth that we get to sing, we get to sing out in this morning. Pray that you were blessed by that time of worship as we were able to join together in singing to our Lord. Well, get myself together here this morning. Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. Uh, it's always uh, it, it's always great, as always, it is great to be anywhere God's people gather. We look forward, I know I do, and I hope you do as well, we look forward every week to spending time together in wonderful worship and wonderful fellowship. Now, the worship of our Lord is not just the songs that we sing, though that's part of it. Uh, it's the worship of our Lord is also uh, the time that we spend together as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's also the reading of God's Word and the prayer and also the preaching of God's Word, and that's what we give ourselves to this morning. Our time together gives us encouragement as we face the difficulty of these evil days which we fi- in, in which we find ourselves living. Last week we began our series that I have called Preparing for Battle from Ephesians 6, 10-20. We started this series by looking at the demonic activity surrounding the church at the, the church at Ephesus and Paul's ministry. We also looked at Paul's call to the church to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We saw that Satan and the demonic realm will always attack anywhere God's people are faithful. And we also saw that Satan is a fierce enemy. The apostle Peter warns that he roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. As Christians, we need protection from him. He has many tried and true true schemes which we can easily fall for. According to Paul, then, we need the full armor of God to be able to stand firm against this crafty enemy. Now, most everyone has heard of the devil. And I would venture to say that most are aware of the demonic world. But there are many misconceptions regarding both. I remember growing up and, you know, the devil had a pitchfork, right? My mom said he's going to stick me with it. Well, the devil is a great foe to the believer, and he hates the church. And he has inflicted much damage in this world. It is also true that this world, the world that we live in, this world system, lies under his control. Yet, While we do not want to underestimate him, we shouldn't overestimate his abilities. As Christians, we must recognize that he is not, underlined capital letters, not greater than God. He is not equal to God. As a matter of fact, he is nothing like God. Today we will find that he must answer to God and can do nothing outside of God's direction. That's interesting, isn't it? In this sermon, in this sermon this morning, we will study how to identify our enemy. We will also discuss how he operates and how the demonic world is organized. I hope at the end of this sermon you will have a greater understanding of your enemy, uh, Satan, and I pray that you'll have a greater appreciation for Paul's instructions to the church at Ephesus. I, will, I believe that you will have a greater confidence in the sovereignty of and authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me pray, and then we'll read the text, and then we'll get started. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning as we approach your text of Scripture. I pray that I would illuminate the, or clarify, if you will. But I know, ultimately, I cannot do that in my own power. I am only an instrument. I pray that I would truly understand that as I stand before these people and preach your word and that I would grasp in my heart that it is the work of the Holy Spirit both in the heart of the the preacher and in the heart of the listener as as we endeavor on this task of preaching. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read Ephesians 6.10. 
through 17. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. In his book, Sketches of Scottish Church History, Thomas McCree tells a story about John Welsh, who was the great-grandson of John Knox, a great preacher in Scotland. After he had been expelled from his parish in Iron Grey, he engaged in field preaching for 19 years. During this time, the government offered 500 pounds for his capture. On one occasion, being pursued with unrelenting rigor, he was at a loss where to flee. But depending on Scottish hospitality, he called on at the house of a gentleman of known hostility, hostility toward street, uh, field preachers in general and to himself, that is, John Welsh, that is, uh, in particular. Though he had never seen Mr. Welsh before, he was kindly received. In the course of conversation, Welsh was mentioned. They talked about the difficulty of finding and apprehending the rogue preacher. Mr. Welsh replied, I am sent to apprehend rebels. I know where he is to preach tomorrow and will give you the rebel by the hand. The gentleman, overjoyed at this news, agreed to accompany his informant the next morning. When they arrived, the congregation made way for the minister and his host. He desired the gentleman to sit down on a chair at which, to his utter astonishment, his guest of the previous night stood and preached. During the sermon, the gentleman was much affected, and at the close, Mr. Welsh, according to his promise, gave him his hand. But the gentleman cried out, You said you were sent to apprehend rebels, and I am a rebellious sinner and have been apprehended this day. Of course, the story certainly highlights the magnificent power of the gospel to save rebels, to save sinners. But it also demonstrates that this world and the people in it are hopeless prisoners of this world system. They are captives of the, of the power of the air, Satan and his demonic realm. In Ephesians 2.2, Paul describes this as the spirit which is now working in the sons of disobedience. He says, he says it, is a, it is a system in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Ultimately, we should recognize that the Spirit, we should recognize that there is a world system which Satan sits on top of, which Satan controls. We were hopelessly, before Christ saved us, we were hopelessly enslaved in the devil's evil order until we were rescued by Christ from the domain of darkness. You don't believe me? Listen to Paul in Colossians 1.13. Paul said that the Father has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is, of course, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in that verse, Paul told the Colossians that we have been saved from the demonic realm which he associates with darkness. Now, last week, we began this new series from Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. As we return to that section, I want to remind you of, of a few incredible truths from the book of Ephesians, which I believe will help us understand this section. In Ephesians 1, 4, Paul encouraged that the church at Ephesus that God had gloriously saved the believer in eternity past. He, he says, just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. 
See, he chose the, the church at Ephesus, he chose those people to, from the foundation of the world, from before the foundation of the world. He sent his son to shed his blood for our redemption and the forgiveness of our trespasses. He made the mystery of his will known to us so that we would understand God's intention to sum up all things in Christ. And he sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise so that we would have confidence in this glorious salvation in which he has given us. Because of these great truths, then we can have a true hope in his calling. We can have an understanding of the riches of his glory. And we can have, we do have access to the same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies. We have access, direct access to that power. In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, he says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet, that it would be Christ, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ultimately, Paul wanted the church at Ephesus to recognize and understand that they had access to the very power of God, which raised Christ from the dead, and he wanted to, them to recognize that the church itself is the fullness of Christ in this world. Now, in chapter 3, he used his own life and ministry as a model for living a sold-out life for Christ. In, chapter, in verse 12 in chapter 3, he reminds the church that in Christ we have bold and confident access to God, to God the Father through faith in Christ. That is, to the throne of God. We have that access. We've been given that access. In verse 18 of chapter 3, he prayed that we would be able, or the, the church at Ephesus would be able to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and that they would know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge. And in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 3, he gave a doxology which ascribes to God the ability to do far abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Again, we must understand that Paul is referring to the power of God which raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenlies in, in, in him. And that same power, and we must understand, that same power works mightily within his church. It works mightily within his people. Now, up to this point, Paul has used words to, his words to encourage, up to chapter 3, the church to go all in for the purpose of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, in chapter 4, Paul begins to teach the church how they should live their lives considering the truths of the first three chapters. We have called this, in this series, the, series, the worthy walk. In other words, as Christians, we are called to live in a certain way. We are called to be humble. We are called to be gentle. We are called to be patient. We are called to show tolerance for one another in love. We are called to work to preserve the unity and peace in the body. And in, according to Ephesians 4.19 then, we are to avoid sensuality and the practice of impurity. Now, if you look at Ephesians 4:25, we are to speak the truth in, in we are to speak the truth in love to one another. Now, according to Ephesians 4:27, and this is where I, what I wanted to get to, according to Ephesians 4:27, he says we are not to give the devil an opportunity. Now, this is an important point for us. Paul goes on to say in the following verses that that we must not steal, steal but labor. We are not to speak unwholesome words, but we must speak for sanctification. We must not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom we are sealed. We must put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. Now, now here's, the, here's what we need to We need to make the connection here. I want you to notice that ultimately our sins, our sins, give the devil an opportunity. In other words, say this carefully, the devil does not make us sin. The devil doesn't make us sin. We are fully responsible for our sins. Yet, we must see, we must recognize that the devil will make the most of our sins for his purposes. Remember, what we have to remember is he hates Christ and the church, and he will attack at every crevice. He will, he will try to get in at every opportunity. And many times, beloved, his mode of attack is through our sinful actions. For example, 
when we are jealous of one another, he does, he will capitalize on that. In 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, I didn't make this up. No, Paul rebuked the Corinthian church for acting in the flesh. And in, in, listen, just listen to these verses, starting in, in verse uh, 1, chapter, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. Then he says this, For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? Now here's the picture. The Corinthian church was They were believers. They had been rescued from the domain of darkness, but they were acting according to the flesh. In the words of John MacArthur, he says, Although the Corinthian believers were no longer natural, they were not spiritual, fully controlled by the Holy Spirit. In fact, they were carnal, controlled by the fallen flesh. So, though all believers have the Holy Spirit, they still battle the fallen flesh. And you see, end quote. And you see, in their fleshly or carnal state, they were struggling with jealousy and strife. Now, the sin of jealousy may seem but a little thing but it can light a fire in a church that cannot be extinguished until it is completely gutted. In the words of, in the words of John Wesley, he says, As the most dangerous wind may enter in little openings, so the devil never enters more dangerously than by unobserved incidents, which seem to be nothing, yet insensibly open the heart to great temptation." End quote. Now, he's speaking, obviously, of the individual, but we can say the same thing at the corporate level, at the church level, that it's the little sins that, that we sort of brush under the rug. It's okay to be jealous. It's okay to be covetous. But the truth is, is that those are the little openings that the enemy takes advantage of. In the Corinthian church, we, saw, we see the destructive uh, effects of carnality, which is an, an internal condition. In the case of the Corinthians, external and worldly influence came in among them and interacted with their carnal condition resulting in jealousy and led to strife amongst the body. The ultimate result was divisions within the church. And if they'd been left to, to go with their own way, it would have destroyed, it would have completely destroyed the church. Therefore, they had a profound lack of unity within the body of Christ at Corinth. <coughs> Again, we must understand that satanic forces capitalize on our fleshly tendencies, creating these problems within the body of Christ. This is the reason why Paul took so many pains in chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians to spell out how they were to live considering their calling in Christ. That's why he did that. It's because, again, he says in 4.27, don't give the devil an opportunity. The, the point is, is we can't live in carnality and expect him not to. Now, you may recall that he had earlier, earlier had called them to walk as children of light. You see, he understood that when Christians walk in the darkness, Satan takes advantage and can even destroy a church. We can be assured that demonic forces will attack the body of Christ anytime a church desires to be obedient to Christ and carry out his mission, but we can't give him the opportunity. Now, in last week's sermon, we saw three critical preparations for demonic opposition to the church's mission. As we anticipate, notice I said anticipate, opposition, you are to prepare by, and this is review, placing your confidence in the right source. That's verse 10. Placing your confidence in the right source. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the, the strength of His might. That's Ephesians 6.10. Put simply... We are to trust in the power and the might of the Lord. We must avoid trusting in flesh and blood, trusting in men. According to Ephesians 20, 1, 22 and 23, we have, as I said earlier, at our disposal, the very same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies. We, we need to recognize that power, and we must recognize that error is subtle. As I prepared for this series, I took 
a few minutes, it didn't take me long, to search to find errors that are propagated in the church related to this. In the impromptu interview with Benny Hinn after he had had, had a crusade or whatever it is he does, he, Benny Hinn's a well-known charismatic, he said the following. This is, this is raw. I mean, this is raw. He said this, when, when Satan attacks us, you have two choices. You can break or you can get stronger. Okay, I get that. Getting stronger, but he goes on to say, getting stronger is not as easy as you think because it takes determination and it takes focus and it's hard to focus with the distractions of life, end quote. Beloved, if you don't see the error there, let me point it out. And we, we can't fall for this type of thinking because this is worldly thinking. Our strength, the strength that we need to resist the devil does not come from ourselves. Uh, we, can't, we can't conjure it up. It, it, we can't get it by determination. We, we don't get it through focus. The strength that we need to stand firm against the schemes of the devil comes from the Lord. See, Benny Hinn's words are better suited for a psychologist on Oprah Winfrey than from a man of God. True men of God derive their strength from the Lord. Now, second in review, we are to prepare by putting, you are to prepare by putting your trust in the required resources. Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. As we have discussed the, the devil himself is full of schemes which have enslaved unbelievers and can deceive believers. Paul says we need to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand firm when he attacks. Now, as we progress in this series, uh, this series is kind of getting bigger and bigger, unfortunately, for the, in terms of time, but it's okay. I'm glad, I'm glad to do it. I'm thankful to do it, but I think it's going to be longer than I thought. But as we progress, we're going to look at this armor piece by piece. But for now, we must know that God expects us to put this armor on just like we would put our clothes on in the morning. We need to have it, but there needs to be a sense of urgency in doing so. God's armor is the appropriate retire for the type of combat that we find ourselves engaged. For example, an astronaut wouldn't be, wouldn't, at all spacewalk with his favorite jeans and t-shirt, right? A soldier wouldn't show up in shorts and flip-flops. As soldiers in Christ's army, we have to have the correct attire, and that is the full armor of God. Third, in review, verse 12, pinpointing the reality. So we prepare for demonic opposition by pinpointing the reality of the enemy. Look at verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, last week I was able to just touch on this verse, but this week, this week in this sermon, we're going to camp out here for, for the rest of the day. Now, I did, I'm doing this because after the sermon, one of our men pointed out that he struggles with this topic because we tend to, in the church, put too much emphasis on the power of the enemy, and I agree with him. Therefore, I want to take the time to study what the Bible actually says about our enemy. So we're going to look specifically at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. In that verse, he gives three sobering truths which help pinpoint the reality of our enemy and the authenticity of our struggle against him. First, we're going to see Satan is unquestionably real. Second, we're going to see that he is undoubtedly restrained. And third, we're going to see he's undeniably reprehensible. Undeniably reprehensible. Look at, our, look at your text, verse 12. Paul writes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So this, this is the first point. Satan is unquestionably real. So Paul says it's not against flesh and blood. The word translated struggle has the idea of wrestling, as in a wrestling match, but could also mean a fight or a battle. You could envision it as close hand-to-hand -hand combat. Paul would have pictured warfare as being with knives and spears, and, and it would have included close 
fighting with these handheld weapons and even with our own bare hands or with their own bare hands. Yet, our struggle is not against a flesh and blood enemy, but an enemy that we can't see with our eyes. The, the Bible consistently presents Satan and his demons as part of the spiritual realm. They are presented as being in the heavenlies. Ephesians 3.10, he says that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places or in the heavenlies. You see, our enemy is a spiritual creature who is nonetheless fierce. He is a much greater enemy than the greatest of fighters among men. Now, as you know, there have been great warriors that have lived. Even today, we can conjure up pictures of incredible warriors who have done uh, amazing feats on the, the battlefield. But the satanic forces of, of the darkness are much greater enemies than we can see, than any, than, than any that we can see. Now, even though he's a spiritual enemy, he's no less a real creature. He's no less a real creature, even though we can't see him. In some cases, we have seen, uh, we do see in Scripture where he's taken other forms which allow him to be seen by humans. The Bible speaks of him in, in Genesis 3.1 uh, as a serpent who deceived Eve. And we can be certain that this certain serpent was Satan himself. Because the Apostle John identifies him in Revelation 12, 9. He says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Paul also alludes to the craftiness of, of Satan as the personality behind uh, the serpent. In 2 Corinthians eleven three, he says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. Now we know from Ephesians 6 that this craftiness is the schemes of the devil are attributed to him. So in a sense, Paul is saying that that serpent is truly Satan. The book of Job gives us perhaps the most, most information regarding his existence and how he relates to God and the earth and the angels. In Job 1 verses 6 to 7, we'll revisit this in a moment, but it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was also among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where did you come? And Satan answered, and the Lord said, I'm sorry, Satan answered and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Now in this account, the sons of God, which are the angelic host, approached God's throne to give account of their ministries, and Satan also came among them. And we see that he had been roaming about the earth, presumably looking for someone to devour, if we go back to what Peter said. Now, there are several truths here for us to unpack, but for now I want you to see that he is a, a real creature. He truly exists, and he truly walks around on the earth. He roams around on the earth. Now, in later biblical revelation, Jesus interacted with him. In Matthew 4, 1, Matthew gives the account of Satan tempting Jesus after fasting 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. In Matthew 4, 1, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And we also see in other places that Jesus made direct references to him. In Matthew 6, 13, Jesus probably prayed in the in the uh, the 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 Lord's Prayer, he probably prayed for us to be delivered. It says in, in most of your translations from evil, but it probably actually refers to the evil one, which ultimately, because he's in control of this world, it, then, then be, being delivered from the evil one means that we would be delivered from evil. In Mark 4.15, Jesus gives the meaning of the parable of the sower, and in his explanation, he says that Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In John 8, 44, he said to some who profess belief in him, he says, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and a father of lies. The point, or the father of lies, the point is, is that Jesus uh, saw him as a real creature. A real creature with an intellect and a will. 
The Bible gives him several names. In the Old Testament, he is referred to as, as 14 times as Satan. This word means adversary or opponent. In the New Testament, he's referred by the same name 34 times. He's also referred to as Diabolos or devil 31 times. He's given other names in the New Testament, such as the evil or the wicked one, the dragon 11, the evil or wicked ones 15 times, the dragon 11 times, snake or serpent 5 times. He's also referred to as an accuser, a liar, a murderer, and our enemy. And these, these names give us a, a good understanding of his true character. You see, beloved, our adversary, Satan, is unquestionably real. He's unquestionably real. He's just as real as any creature we can t- see or touch. He, Paul says that it is with him... It, Paul says that... It, my notes are messed up. <laughs> That's okay. I'll get, I'll get it I'll get it straight. It is with Him and with His realm that we battle. But this leads to one question about Him. Is He equal to God? Are we to picture good as the perfect balance for evil? Maybe a yin and yang idea. Let's keep going to answer this question and more. Look at Ephesians 6.12 again. Where Paul expresses the second sobering truth which helps us pinpoint the reality of our enemy and and the authenticity of our struggle against him. Second, Satan is undoubtedly restrained. Look at your text. Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. Now you may be asking yourself how this shows that Satan is a restrained enemy. Well, let's walk through this by by looking at a few truths that I believe will help you understand that he is undoubtedly restrained. You see, he's been given a a hierarchy to rule. Now, uh, the spiritual struggle that we have is against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces. Now, it's hard to fully understand and differentiate between these entities that Paul describes here. The word translated rulers probably refers to something with primacy and power and dominion and office. In this context, it probably refers to rank and rule or to an angelic ruler. The, the word translated powers could also be translated authorities. This refers to an entity who has a, a right or a freedom to act. Again, in this context, it, it refers to angelic authorities. The word translated world forces is incredibly interesting. Paul is probably referring to world or cosmic rulers. This word, this description appears in Jewish literature as world rulers of darkness. Hellenistic or Greek religions refer to gods who control parts of the universe. Again, uh, related to what Paul is saying here. The Jewish religion referred to these gods as evil spirits. Paul could very well have been referring to cosmic rulers with terrifying power and influence over this world and its nations. Now, a few things are clear from this. These, the use of plural terms shows that Satan has a hierarchy to rule. These demonic beings have rank and responsibility within their structure. In Revelation 12, 9, Paul says, referred to the dragon whose tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them down to earth. Uh, the, this, the scripture then indicates that these fallen angels form the demonic realm which has rank and order. Now, look back at your text. Look back at your text. I want you to see something. Notice that it says, against the world forces, and he qualifies it, of this darkness. He clearly delineates that these forces are of this darkness. Now, Scripture has much to say about light and darkness. We need to understand that light is always associated with God and His holy angels. In John, 1 John 1, 5, John says, This is the message which we heard from Him and announced to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. In the Gospel of John uh, verses one, or chapter 1, verses 4-5, through five, John says of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. 
the New English Translation Bible may be the better translation of John's idea here. He is probably saying that the darkness has not mastered the light. The word mastered could be understood in two ways. A boy may master his work or he may, may, or he may master his opponent. In other words, the darkness cannot understand the light and the darkness cannot overcome the light, cannot master the light. In that sense, then we must understand that darkness is the absence of light. Therefore, the darkness has no power against the light. Now, darkness is always associated with Satan and his demonic realm. And here's the point. The demonic realm rules the darkness. But the darkness has no power over the light, right? You see, as such, he's been given a realm to rule, but he he has a limit. He is limited by the light. And since God is light, God has limited him, and therefore he has been undeniably restrained by God. Satan can only do what God allows him to do. Job 1 illustrates this point. And you can turn there if you would like. I, earlier I referred to verses 5-7, through seven, which depicts Satan coming in among the sons of God. He had come from uh, roaming about on the earth. So if you want to pick up in John or Job, that is, 1, verse 8. It says, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then <clears throat> Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has and on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely, he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Incredibly, God initiates this conversation with Satan by asking if he had considered Job. And Job answers, or um, Satan answered, He follows you because you have richly blessed him. That's the only reason. If you remove those blessings, he will curse you. So God gave, gave Satan power over his possessions, but he limited Satan by saying, you can't touch him. Now later in Job 2, if you want to turn there, the scene repeats. But this time, Satan admits that he has failed to cause Job to curse God. So he took everything from him, materially, but Job didn't curse God. Listen to verse, verses... Well, this time, this time God gave Satan power to afflict Job. If you look at the text, you look at the text. The rest of the book tells how the story of how Job responded in his afflictions. Now, ultimately, so so the first time he said you can touch him, you can you can take his material possessions, but you can't touch him. The second time he said, but you can afflict him, but you can't cause him to die. So so that was the limit. Again, what we see is that there's a limit to what Satan can do, but ultimately, God is the one who sets that limit. In Job 42, we see the answer, the ultimate answer. It comes from Job. Job 42, 1-6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You know what the point is? The point is, is that our God is in heaven. And he does whatever He pleases. There's no one that limits. There's no one that limits our God. He has been on the throne from the beginning. And He's still on His throne. It's not a situation where Satan and God are equal and opposites. God rules the universe, and He is allowed for His purposes. He has allowed Satan to do certain things for God's glory. His purposes cannot be thwarted. Not even a powerful being like Satan can stand against God's purposes. 
Now let me give you a couple of related, related truths. Satan knows his fate. In Genesis 3.15, God promised to crush the head of the serpent. Satan knows this as well as you and I. In Revelation 20, John says that the, the devil's final fate will be the lake of fire and brimstone where he will be tormented every day and night forever and ever. Believe it, beloved, beloved, we shouldn't be fearing the devil. We should be fearing God. And the truth is, is if you are, if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ right now, today, it's not the devil you need to be fearing. He's going to be right there with you. Being, suffering torment. Second truth. He cannot indwell the Christian. We know that he is undoubtedly restrained, and we find no place in Scripture where the devil or demons indwell a believer. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit and a demon cannot dwell in the same person. It's an impossibility. You've heard it said that a believer has demons from the past, maybe referring to anger or alcohol, but it, that, that has to be a, a just play on words. It's not an actual demon. Believers never have an actual demon possessing them. Another truth. God uses Satan for his purposes. We saw that truth in Job 1 and 2. We also see the truth in Genesis 50, 50, 20, where it says, where Joseph said to his brothers, As for you, you meant it as evil against me, but God meant it for good. The, what did God mean? The evil. He used it for good in order to bring about uh, this present result to preserve many people alive. The point was is that, that they were in now in Egypt, and God used the brothers' actions. He used their evil for His purposes. Now, we've seen the first two sobering truths about our adversary, the devil. Let's look at the third one. Satan is undeniably reprehensible. Satan is undeniably reprehensible. Look back at your text. Paul writes that our struggle is against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, we've already seen that Satan rules through schemes through lies and deceptions. We saw this out of the, wor the words of Jesus in John 8, 44, where He says that He is a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in Him. When He speaks, He speaks from His own nature. He's a liar and a, and a, and a father of lies. Now let me give you quickly some lies of the enemy. Some lies of the enemy. This is the lies that we can fall for. First one is, can I trust God's Word? Can I trust God's Word? This is the oldest lie in the world. In Genesis 3.1, the, the, the devil said, or the serpent said to the woman, Indeed has God said, indeed has God really said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. You see, in that moment, Satan began a deception that will continue till the very end when he will deceive the nations at the very end. Undoubtedly, he will do this by questioning God's Word. He will do this by saying, Has God really said? The second deception is similar. Can I even know the truth? In Genesis 3, 5, Satan promised Eve, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so, from the moment Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they knew the corrupting influence they knew the corrupting influence of evil, and that evil corruption has caused man to doubt the truth of God's Word from that point forward. Another lie. I can impress God with my goodness. I can impress God with my goodness. In Genesis 4, this lie manifests itself with Adam and Eve's first son, Cain. And it says in, in Genesis 4, Abel on his part brought also, also brought the first firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. So when Cain brought his offering to God who rejected it, I would argue that the offering was dependent upon his own works to impress God. 
while Cain, uh, Abel's offering was dependent upon God's grace, Cain's offering was dependent upon his own works. I wish I had time to unpack that, but suffice it to say that man has been deceived into depending upon his good works when salvation has been by grace through faith from the very beginning. The next lie is opposite of the last one, but it's, it's the same lie ultimately. I can never be loved by God. I can never be loved by God. This is, this is the lie that we can never be good enough for God. The other side, this is the other side of the coin from trying to impress God with our goodness. This lie focuses on our works and, and doubts God's grace. I would, I would argue that the lie that I can impress God with my goodness ultimately ends up with the realization that we cannot impress Him. The truth is that God can save even the worst of sinners by His grace. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving, deserving full exception, acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. And yet Paul was saved by His grace. There's another related lie. I can be sinless. In 1 John, John addressed some false teachers who said they had fellowship with Christ yet walked in the darkness. Evidently, they also believed that they no longer had a sin nature. John, John answered them. He said in 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Of course, of course Paul clearly taught in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let me give you another one. My suffering is weakness. My suffering is weakness. When we suffer, whether by affliction or persecution, our flesh cries to be released from that suffering. We can tend to believe that suffering shows, shows weakness. Well, it does show weakness. Weakness that depends on God's power. But it shouldn't show weakness that depends on man's power. In 2 Corinthians 13, 4, Paul says this about our Lord. For indeed He was crucified because of weakness. Yet He lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in Him, yet we will live with Him because of the power of God directed towards you. The point is, is that in our weakness, in our suffering, that, that the, the power of God is perfected in us. Let me give you another related lie. I deserve comfort. I deserve comfort. In Philippians 1, 29 and 30, Paul writes, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Of course, when I speak of comfort in this context, I'm speaking of an easy, comfortable life. You see, God does comfort us. But He comforts, comforts us in the midst of suffering. Just listen to 2 Corinthians 1, 1-5. He says, Paul, an apostle by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with, with all saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. But get this, he qualifies it. Who comforts us in all, our, in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The point is, he's not going to deliver us from our suffering, necessarily. But he will give us, he will provide for us the comfort that we need as we go through their, those afflictions. Let me give you one other lie. I don't need to pray. Beloved, our Lord spent much time in prayer to the Father. John 17 gives us a beautiful example of Jesus' prayer life with His Father. Just listen to uh, John 17, 12. He's, Jesus says this in His prayer. While I was with them, I was keeping them in Your name, which You have given Me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. 
He's praying that to his father. Later in this section, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Andrew Murray says, the enemy uses all his power to lead the Christian and above all the minister to neglect prayer. He knows that however admirable the sermon may be, however attractive the service, however faithful the pastoral visitation, none of these things can damage him or his kingdom if prayer is neglected, end quote. I could go on. I, I'm, out of, I'm way out of time. There's other, there's other ones. Why don't I have what my neighbor has? I'm too busy to love and serve my neighbor or my church. I am who I am. Everyone else is a hypocrite. I must look the part of a Christian. It's okay if I don't get along with certain folks in the church. Grace gives me license to sin, and the devil made me do it. All those lies that Satan Satan whispers into our ears. And he's going to continue to whisper those lies into our ears until he brings us home, because he is wicked, the wicked enemy. Let me give you a wonderful truth from Andrew Murray. Wonderful truth we need to hold on to. Soon the battle will be over. It will not be long now before the day will come when Satan will no longer trouble us. There will be no more domination, temptation, accusation, or confrontation. Our warfare will be over, and our commander, Jesus Christ, will call us away from the battlefield to receive the victor's crown. End quote. Church, I long for the day when we're no longer influenced by that deceiver, by the serpent of old. I pray that you long for that day as well. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you this morning. Thankful, Lord, for your goodness to us. Father, may we not walk in the darkness. May we not give the devil an opportunity. But we know that he's a defeated foe. We know that he, he, Lord, knows his fate. Yet, in this evil day, in this evil day, he roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. May we not give him that opportunity. May we put on the full armor of God so that we would be able to resist. May we understand what that means. And I pray as the series goes on that we would come to understand more and more what it means to put on that full armor and live resisting our enemy. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're going to now enter a time of communion.